I feel like every time I um, stand up here, the band's bigger. Like every week I come back, the band's bigger. But it's fantastic. I really like it. So next week I want to see it kind of curve round the walls. That would be, that'd be lovely. When David, David emailed me a few weeks ago and he said, oh, Brent, would you be able to speak you know, before the baby comes, this sort of thing? Here's your passage. And uh, I can't say I was overly excited about it. Um, it's a pretty kind of you know, heavy piece of work. And uh, I'm definitely no student of prophecy and end times and things like that. I, I find myself fairly, uh, fairly out of my depth with that sort of thing. And more so, as I was reflecting to my wife Rachel um, the other day, it can have a bit of a polarising effect on the church. Sometimes when we talk about these sort of things, you have people who fall this way or that way on a particular belief and they say, oh, those, those other people, they're not, they're not real Christians, they don't understand. So my, um, my plea to you this morning as a, as a humble guy standing up here, submitted to the word, submitted to God, is that if I say anything that kind of is out of kilter with what you hold to be true, don't toss me out on my ears or anything like that. Um, Let's just treat each other with grace. You may well find yourselves talking about this after the service, go off to lunch, keep talking about it, and you might meet each other and say, oh, we don't actually uh, think the same way about this. Show each other grace. We're all learning. This stuff is all very, very hard. So don't, uh, don't be too kind of um, dogmatic about it. Uh, I don't, I'm not here to push a particular line or view. I'm just sitting here saying what I believe God's put on my heart today. So uh, are we ready? Um, this slide. This slide is, um, this is from Kings Canyon. I had, the, I had the privilege to go to Kings Canyon in year 11, uh, so a little while ago now. Um, and, and our school sent our whole year level on a two-week bus trip up the centre of Australia um, to Darwin. And Kings Canyon's not, not quite as far as Darwin. We got there kind of um, about three-quarters of the way through. And it's a beautiful place. Uh, this picture definitely doesn't do it justice. I think this was taken, judging by the length of the shorts, uh, probably in the 70s. Um, just really short shorts on some of those people up there. Um, so, Kings Canyon is a beautiful place and um, you can see that there's these kind of sheer walls of, of stone and rock uh, where I guess the rock's just cracked and fallen away and then crumbled down into the ground. And uh, it's, not very, it's not very obvious from this shot, but it's quite deep. And so you can walk around, it's, I mean it's no Grand Canyon or anything, but you can walk around the bottom and you've got these huge sharp walls of flat stone up either side. And uh, it's, it's fantastic. And um, the only thing about that is when you're down in the canyon, you can't really see anything else. So we, we walked around the top like they've done here and then we walked through, through the bottom. And uh, once you're in the bottom, all you can see is kind of what's down the corridor and uh, this little kind of that section of sky above you like that. And uh, if there's a corner... You can't see around the corner because it's just all, you know, right angles of rock. You're, you don't get a big view. So a few of us, you know, we, we very much enjoyed walking around the canyon and, and that was a lovely experience and we could, there's some Aboriginal paintings there and things like that. We could get up close and personal with those things. Um, but it's a huge place and we had a day there, not even quite a day. And uh, so we saw as much as we could, but it's a very small, small percentage. 
So uh, myself and a handful of others, we paid a little bit of extra money as a year 11, that's a pretty big deal. And um, we got in a Cessna little aircraft and they took us up and they took us over the canyon and around the top and we could see the whole thing. Uh, we could see how far the bush stretched away. This is in the, the middle of oh, scrubby sort of desert, so you can see way off into the distance. And uh, we could see how the canyon twists and turns and how far it stretches. And, and we could see that you can't see it here, but there's a waterfall and a swimming hole and all these areas that we were never going <laughs> to reach on foot in the small amount of time we had. And we got this big picture perspective. And um, in looking at Jesus' words today, um, we're going to attempt to take that big picture perspective. Uh, I'm going to be quite ambitious. We're going to we're going to include the whole of chapter 13 in Mark. So we're going to we're going to go backwards a little bit. We're going to dip into Matthew 24 a little bit. Uh, we're going to dip into Acts a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about history. It's going to be a big morning. So in doing this, my hope is that we will transcend just seeing one tiny little section of the canyon. Uh, we're not going to be stuck just going, oh, you know, how does this tiny slice of the word relate to me? We're going to take a big picture approach and uh, hopefully that'll help us understand where we fit in all this as well um, because that's really important. Uh, let me pray and then we'll, we'll begin as well. Uh, Lord, as we look at your word today... Um, there's a lot to take in and there's a lot to think about, a lot to process. And uh, yeah, we just pray that you would give us alertness, give us uh, energy to focus, um, give us an imagination to be able to put ourselves in other people's shoes when that, when that part of the sermon comes up. And, uh, and I pray that uh, you would speak to us each today and speak to us as a church, help us to have this dialogue about how we live um, most faithfully for you. I pray that you would speak through me and, and get rid of any of the, the junk that I've written and just, just the good bits that come through. Uh, I would just pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen. So, let's start with, with a very boring sounding word. Um, that word is exegesis. Uh, if you're not familiar with the word exegesis, what it basically means is to look at a text in the Bible the way that the original people that it was written for would have, would have thought about it, would have heard it, would have understood it um, and how the author would have understood that. So there's a really important rule of exegesis and this is like what every Bible college student should know, every scholar should know, every BSF leader should know and that is... Don't worry if you don't. It's, it's, <laughs> and that is uh, that the text can't mean or we shouldn't impose on the text a meaning that it didn't mean to the original hearers. So if I'm reading my Bible and I go, oh, I think, I think that section is saying uh, you know, something about how I should use my mobile phone, I can probably safely say that the author didn't know what a mobile phone was, didn't have a mobile phone and wasn't texting or anything. So there might be some sort of lesson that I can take out of it, but I can't really say literally the guy that wrote it meant mobile phone in this instance. So in any sort of uh, Bible text, we've just got to keep this in mind, we're not the intended audience. Uh, this isn't written to us. Uh, it's definitely absolutely for our benefit 
Um, the Bible is the best way that we can learn about God. Um, but we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking when so-and-so was writing this book, uh, he had me in mind. He doesn't know me, he can't know I existed. That's not, that's not possible. Um, so we, we should think a little bit differently. We should think, I'm actually eavesdropping through time on someone else's conversation. And I'm, I'm learning from that and I'm getting something out of that. So in this case, we're eavesdropping on a conversation between the author of Mark and his audience, who would have been the early church back in, say, 65 AD, that sort of time. And so we're going to see what we can get out of that. Um, so that's super important is to remember that. We're eavesdropping on someone else's conversation. Um, the second really important thing to remember about this is uh, this whole chapter is Jesus talking about the future. So we use the word prophecy for that. And we say, oh, this is, this is Jesus speaking about things that from his perspective haven't happened yet. So there's certain extra rules that we add on when prophecy is concerned. Uh, it's not as easy as just kind of reading it straight and just going, oh, okay, that means this, this and this, that's, that's done, that's easy, it's just all literal. Uh, there's little additional rules. And one that uh, comes into play today particularly is how prophecy, um, how, when people are writing prophetically, how they treat time. Um, they just don't seem to pay much attention to it, to be honest. Uh, if you read Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, that, they'll write all this stuff and they'll write about their present time and the future. Sometimes they'll be talking about very far in the future. Sometimes they'll be talking about kind of their present situation. Sometimes they're talking about both at the same time. So there's a passage that uh, Jesus quotes here from, from uh, Isaiah. He's using it in a way that Isaiah uh, wasn't just using it. So that passage spoke about the far future and the medium future, if you like, at the same time. And sometimes they don't even indicate when they're moving between the two. So time is very fluid to a prophetic writer. Um, it's definitely not like, oh, day one, I wrote in my journal, this happened, and then I went here, and then day two. It's very, very fluid. So don't get too... Uh, worried if it sounds like um, how does this all make sense in a linear time frame uh, don't stress too much time is extremely fluid and I'll come back to that this will all make sense later so if you're sitting there going Brent why are you telling me this stuff I don't care it will become relevant I promise um, so it sounds yeah it sounds difficult and that's why I didn't want this text <laughs> so as we get a, a bigger picture and as we kind of read through this whole chapter I'm not going to actually read it to you um, I'm just going to kind of summarise it for you starting at the start of 13 uh, they've been at the temple the disciples are with Jesus they're all hanging out uh, he has some hard things to say to the religious leaders at the time and then they leave the temple and as they're leaving uh, you've got to understand the disciples who are they they're essentially fishermen from a backwater town and now they're at the, the big smoke, uh, Jerusalem, and um, they look around and they're just so impressed by these huge buildings. They're so impressed by this marvellous temple. And this is the second temple, so it's not even as good as the first one that Solomon built. Uh, that was already destroyed. This is Temple 2 and it's still pretty cool and to their minds, they've probably never seen a building taller than this. So they're like, oh my goodness, it's a temple. And they say to Jesus, how impressive is this place? What an amazing place. And he essentially says to them, actually, don't get too impressed um, because this is all going to be torn down. 
Not a single stone is going to be left standing. This whole place is going to get destroyed. And uh, that's a very big thing to say. If you're Jewish and you're in, uh, you're in 65 AD, um, you, don't, you don't joke about that sort of thing. The last time the temple was destroyed, it was catastrophic. It almost took the whole nation down. That would be like going to uh, America and joking about 9-11. You just, you wouldn't do it. That would be kind of very extremely rude. And um, so they know Jesus is talking seriously. Um, in fact, if you want to see how seriously they took the fall of Temple One, re- read the book of Lamentations. That's how they felt after the temple, first temple fell down. And it is not a happy book. There is a lot of we just wish we were dead in there. So that's their attitude. So they come to him and they say, oh, how is this going to happen? Tell us what you meant by that. And then he goes into this list. These are his prophecies. He says, the temple will be thrown down. He says, war will approach and you're going to hear about it. He says, there'll be earthquakes and famines. He says, false messiahs and deceivers with miracles are going to come. He says, you're going to be handed over to the government and you're going to be persecuted in the synagogues. He says, you're going to stand before kings in witness uh, to the gospel. He says, the gospel is going to be preached to all nations. He says, when you go to trial, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to say. He says, everyone's going to hate you and your family's going to betray you. He says, the abomination that causes desolation is going to stand in the temple. And he says, when you start to see these things happen, and this is, uh, this is possibly a note from Mark to his readers in 65 AD. So you'll see there, it'll say somewhere, let, let the reader understand or reader, pay attention because he's writing to, to the early church in 65 AD, not to us. And he says, when you see these things happen, flee, get out and don't come back. Serious stuff. So this is this is Jesus' prophecies. Where where does this fit? So we're gonna we're gonna take a little um, time travel backwards, uh, and you'll see I've actually drawn a cool little arrow there. Pretty special. Um, this is this is our timeline, and we're gonna go back to 65 AD ish. That's what circa means. It's a very fancy way of going ish. 65 AD-ish. That's about the time Mark was written and uh, that's about just shy of, uh, a little bit short of 35 years after uh, after Jesus' death and he spoke these words not long before his death so his his words were spoken about in 33. Um, Then after, after Mark, some time, some, maybe, maybe about five or six years, um, the book of Acts was written. And the book of Acts details the experiences of the early church and those experiences take place there. So you're starting to get a picture. If we're back in time with the author of Mark, we're standing right in the middle of the early church's experience. We're after Jesus' death, but we're before the, the writing of Acts and we're before the fall of the temple. Um, I'll come back to this in more detail, but in AD 70, uh, a Roman general named Titus invaded Jerusalem um, and the temple was destroyed, was burnt to the ground completely, burned for days. 
and uh, it literally was torn down completely. Uh, Josephus, who's a Jewish historian of the time, so he, he witnessed this his, with his own eyes. He, he was uh, at Jerusalem at the time and uh, he said because the temple burned and they had all this expensive stuff in there, all this gold and silver and stuff, it all melted and it went down between the cracks in the rocks. So Titus said, tear it all down, get the gold out. So he literally ripped the whole thing down to get to the gold. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of our, our timeline. And we're standing on a dusty street somewhere in 65 AD uh, and we're, we're reading the Bible because we want to understand it. And if we want to understand it, we've got to remember it's not all about us. Um, when I was about 10, uh, this is actually quite embarrassing, so don't ever bring this up with me again. It's just scarred. When I was about 10, my sister had her 12th, 13th birthday and somehow she got it in her head that, um, that she wanted... I, see, I, I was never... Clear. No one really told me why, why I had to do this. But somehow either she or my, my parents got it in their head that, oh, great idea, um, Brent, and that's me, and my brother, Neil, and my dad, we're going we're gonna to serve drinks at the party. We're going to be waiters. Um, this was back when some of these things were cool. And uh, they even had little waiters' uniforms for us. And this is where it gets a little bit embarrassing. Uh, black pants, green vest, kind of silk. I think, I think my uncle got them from Thailand or something. Kind of silk-ish vest, red bow tie, and I don't know whose idea this was, but no shirt. <laughs> Just bizarre. So, so you, there's, and I, I, didn't, I didn't bring a photo, but there is a photo of like the three of us uh, just in our kind of shirtless, singlet, bow tie things serving drinks to 13-year-olds at my sister's birthday. Bizarre. But never, ever, ever have I visited a party that was any less about me than that moment. That was all about her. That was her birthday, her day, her celebration, her party, her friends, and I was just the wait staff, no matter how embarrassing that got. And that's kind of what we've got to think about here is when we're looking at these prophecies, we've got to remember this isn't all about us. Um, we're just fitting into a very big picture. So let's, let's look at those prophecies that I read out again. Let's see how they stand from the early church's perspective. Um, so the temple thrown down. As I said, uh, in AD 70, Titus destroyed the temple, ripped it to the ground um, completely. And, and the, in that was a siege of Jerusalem. Brutal stuff. Um, I actually have an English translation of his writings about that time and it's horrific. Um, they, uh, in fact, to give you a, a fuller picture, I wasn't. I, I'll, I'm going to be face checking for how squeamish you are. Um, but uh, so, in AD 65, there's the Great Jewish Revolt, and uh, so Israel's been under the thumb of Rome for a while, and they say that's it, we've had it. Um, nationalists 
basically seize the city. They lock it up. If you were in Jerusalem when these guys t- took power, you weren't very free to come and go because they were like, no, we're all going to stand together. We're going to fight. This is going to be. We're going to liberate Israel. God's on our side. We've got the temple. Um, so they they kind of they fortify the city. Eventually, Rome. Obviously, they're not going to let this stand. They're not going to let some backwater upstart show up the empire. So they they roll out, and the general Titus turns up with all his all his legions of soldiers, and they put the temple to sit. They put the city, should I say, to siege. Now, they were kind of happy if if people came out of the city because that just meant less people to fight. So when I say to siege, you could you could leave, except the Jewish defenders inside wouldn't let you leave. If they thought you were trying to leave, they would kill you. Or if you tried to leave, they would kill you because they saw it as desertion from, from the war. So, years, you know, time goes on, not years, the year rolls on and uh, they run out of food. Can't get any more food, it's a siege. Cannibalism begins. Um, people start to turn on each other and... Um, Josephus writes about how people ate their valuables because they didn't want to be robbed and then sometimes, uh, just doing the face check, um, sometimes they would then be attacked, so this is Jewish people attacked by other Jewish people and they would cut them open to take their money because they knew, oh, you've, you've swallowed your money. Um, brutal, brutal stuff. Absolutely awful and it's no surprise that Jesus' words were, if you even get a hint of this happening, get out. Because once you were in, you were locked in and everyone died. Um, so that's war approaching, the great Jewish revolt. He says there'll be earthquakes and famines. Um, in Acts, and this is why Acts is so important when it was written. Um, in Acts, uh, there's, a, there's a Christian named Agabus. This is in 1128. Don't worry about turning to these. I'm going to kind of flick through a few. Um, and he stood up and says, uh, Acts 11.28 says, Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit, so he prophesied, that there would be a great famine throughout the world. And then the author writes, This happened during the days of Claudius Caesar. And my understanding is that Claudius was Caesar to Titus as general. So about this time there was a huge famine. Um, false messiahs and deceivers with miracles. If you, if you look at um, a guy not like Simon the Sorcerer, so he appears in, uh, in Acts as well. Um, how do they describe him? They say, uh, so this is 8, 9 to 11, they say, for, now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the power, the great power of God. And they followed him. So you've got a guy who's basically saying, I am the power of God embodied and uh, you should follow me. And he would back that up with some miracles. Um, a false messiah, if you like. You've got uh, Jesus' words, they'd be handed over to the government and persecuted in synagogues and you look at Acts and you see Peter and John get handed over. You see the apostles get handed over. They get whipped in the synagogues. They get told, you will never preach the name of Jesus again. Uh, They get handed over to the government. They get persecuted in this way. It all happens just as Jesus predicted. Um, He says, you'll stand before kings in witness. Paul himself gets 
uh, dragged before the Sanhedrin, so the Jewish uh, religious authority, and uh, they, uh, they're unhappy with him, but they don't have the authority to kill him, so they bring him before the Roman governor, Felix. Felix takes forever to make a decision, so he's, he, Paul gives his case before Felix. Felix actually retires without making a decision. He's replaced by a guy named Festus, terrible name. Festus, come on. Um, Governor Festus uh, also feels unqualified to make a decision, so Paul's now preached before the Sanhedrin and two governors. Uh, So he says, I've got my Jewish friend here, King Agrippa, and uh, Paul preaches the gospel to King Agrippa as well. He literally stands in witness and preaches to an actual king. Um, then King Agrippa says, well, I don't know. So Paul appeals to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen and he, they take him off to Rome. He never actually, as far as we know, never actually sees Caesar, sees Caesar. Um, but he does preach in Rome for, for a while, the centre of the known world. And um, in that time, he preaches to the Roman Jews as well, which you'll see in a minute. So we say, well, the gospel needs to be preached to all nations before Jesus can come again. Um, And then at Pentecost, these are the words uh, in Acts used to describe Pentecost. It says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. That's that's the words that will be in your Bible, every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. <coughs> Pentecost was the gospel preached to all nations. Given words to speak at trial by the Spirit, you read the martyring of Stephen and it talks about how the Holy Spirit shone through him and he gives about a three-chapter perfect explanation of the gospel from Genesis through to Jesus and it's just immaculate. You could use it, you could use it as a, an absolute perfect summary of the Bible if you like. Um, he's inspired by the Spirit at his trial and then he dies. Um, everyone will hate you. So when Paul gets to Rome and the Jews in Rome come to him and they say, tell us about this Christianity that you're a part of, the reason they want to know is because they say, because we hear everyone talking about you and they all hate you, and we want to know why they hate you. Um, then there's the siege of Jerusalem, which I described earlier. Now, the abomination that causes desolation, this is a reference back to Daniel. Um, has this happened? Maybe. Josephus records Titus when he... So, he ordered the temple, allegedly, he ordered the temple not to be burned. However, some of his soldiers were a little bit arson happy, I don't know, a bit, bit fire happy and they are accidentally lit it on fire and this huge structure burnt for days 
So they were trying to loot the temple as it was on fire. As I said before, they didn't quite succeed. A lot of it melted, so they tore the thing down. However, Josephus records that, um, that Titus, what's it say, committed despicable acts in the temple before it was destroyed, as it was burning, that he went into the Holy of Holies and committed despicable acts. What is that? We don't know. Um, all this to say, uh, there, is, there is a perspective that we need to understand and that's the perspective of the early church uh, as ex- and their experiences standing you know, 35 years after these words were spoken and they're looking around going, essentially all this is happening. We are living it right now. Jesus was right. We are living it. We are living it. And then the final nail in the coffin or the final piece of the puzzle that's the actual destruction of the temple something that was seen as impossible how could this possibly happen this is God's seat of authority and you're saying Rome could actually tear that down Um, so if you're we're still back in 65 AD remember and you're imagining you're you're one of these members of the early church how would you feel would you think this is all Jesus is coming back any second now And then you remember Jesus' words and he says, Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Would you be be rational in thinking, any day now Jesus is coming back. We've seen fulfilment to everything he said. The temple is destroyed. What is left to happen apart from him riding in on the clouds in power and in glory? However, It's now 2014 and we're still here. So has something gone wrong? Have we missed something? Have we misunderstood? What does this mean for us? Literally, what does this mean for us? Um, Remember I said time's not very linear with prophecy and sometimes things mean more than what they appear to mean. I think Jesus' words... I think Jesus' words were a very real warning to the early church, a very serious warning about their lives and how if they got this wrong, they would suffer and they would die. That's very real and it doesn't affect us. But if you're back when this was written, that's possibly the most important thing you're going to learn is get out of Jerusalem when you hear these things happening because otherwise you're in trouble. However, is that the whole story? No. I think these these things are also doubling as telling us what's what's it going to be like living in this world until Jesus returns. Do we have earthquakes and famines? Absolutely. Are Christians persecuted around the world? Absolutely. Do governments drag us before the courts and say, you can't preach, you can't do this, you can't do that? Absolutely. Will there be another temple? I don't know. Um, but is this some sort of checklist that, uh, you know, like cosmic immigration and Jesus has to wait till these things get ticked off before he's allowed back in the country? I don't think so. I don't think, uh, I don't think we, we necessarily should feel so secure saying, oh, it's okay, Jesus can't come back yet. He's locked out by these conditions because I think in some sense he would, he would just say, well, my, my words have been fulfilled. There's a tipping point where I think we can say what's talking about then 
and what's talking about the future. And I think that tipping point comes at verse 24 where it says, in those days, following the distress, so following all this bad stuff that I've just told you about, following that, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. So we look at history and we say, we see these things happening. We should keep that in mind. Um, this, is, this is us. This is where we stand. We stand in the middle uh, of a prophecy. We stand after Mark is written, after the fall of the temple, yet before Jesus' return. We are living somewhere in this nebulous centre. Um, and it's hard, to, uh, it's hard to know. So what do we do? You know? do, we, do we live every day like Jesus might come back today or tomorrow? In a sense, maybe yes. Um, but what does that really mean? How do we do that in a meaningful sense? Um, and this is where we jump across to Matthew. So, when Matthew relayed these same words, these same sections, it's in chapter 24, he, uh, he uses, he basically li- looks like he copies a large section of Mark, but then he, he fills it out with more teaching from Jesus at the end, and he uses three parables, and you've actually heard two of these three parables in the last two weeks. You've heard Rob teach on the parable of of the talents or the bags of gold. You've heard Andy teach about uh, the sheep and the goats. Both these parables come directly after this. They are Jesus' explanation of how we live considering these end times. And there's one other. It's called the Ten Virgins. Yep, there it is. So, I'm... Oh, let's jump ahead. That's okay. So, uh, I'm going ex- to sum up these three parables for you. I'm not going to go into each one individually. You've heard Rob and Andy do that. I want you to hold what they said in, in your mind and I'm just going to sum- summate his whole section. And I think you'll find there's actually a really coherent lesson that comes out of Jesus' words. But these three parables make one very clear story. He says... And you should read these for yourself at some point and uh, check that I've understood them correctly. Ten virgins, he says. Essentially, he's saying, you don't know when the king will return, so don't get complacent. Stay focused and don't get weary of waiting. So he's saying, you don't know when I'll be back, so stay focused and don't get weary of waiting. Don't waste the time you have until, until I do come back. Um, be faithful to use everything that I've given you to grow my kingdom. That's what Rob was teaching us. That there, there is no excuse to say, ah, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't have enough or I was too busy or I wasn't interested. God expects we'll use everything we have to grow his kingdom. And then Andy said, uh, this means loving your neighbour. And this is very clear from that sheep and the goats type uh, parable. You know, when you invest in loving others, particularly the vulnerable, it's easy to love those who can love us back. It's easy to give money to those who can give it back. It's easy to give shelter to people who are clean, smell good and won't, won't annoy us. 
very easy. However, when we love the vulnerable, that's when we're loving Christ. And I'm not going to tell you kind of how you should enact this in your daily life. That's kind of your, your duty as a Christian. That's your duty as someone who reads the word is to figure out, in this case, how do I best live thinking Jesus really could come back any time. He may not. He might come back today. He might come back 60 generations from now. We don't know. However, it's not for us to say, oh, I'm safe. I don't need to, I don't need to worry about this. It isn't a concern for me. Um, there's a great bumper sticker that floats around. Jesus is coming. Look busy. Uh, that's maybe not the idea. The idea is Jesus is coming, so be faithful. Live it out. Um, how did that look for the early church? Acts 2.42 describes it like this. He says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled at awe with the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favour of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is how they chose to live it out. The question for us is how are we going to choose to live it out? Um, Again, I'm not going to tell you how to do that. I'm not going to say go home, sell all your stuff. But hey, if you choose to do that, I don't think God would be unhappy. For us, we have this this lesson from God. This is the overarching uh, thing that we can take away and know that this will always apply to all Christians through all time equally. This is our mandate. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If we can take that on board, if we can absorb that, if we can live that out daily with sincerity and with a passion, then we're going to be doing really well, really, really well. Let me pray. Lord God, it is... um, It is a privilege to be able to serve you, love you, know you. It is a privilege to be able to read your word and get our heads into the space of uh, the early church who got to experience some amazing things and to know that the same God that they served, the same God who took care of them through all that trouble and all that time is the same God we serve today. Thank you that we can take uh, both comfort and inspiration and motivation from knowing you're coming back and that when you do it's going to be amazing but we don't want to be found wanting we don't want to miss out because we just couldn't couldn't really believe that you'd ever come back or couldn't really believe that we didn't have another 50 years another 60 years whatever it is we want to live each day devoted to you passionate for you excited about you And we pray that by your spirit, which dwells in each of us, you'll help us to do that, that you'll refine us to do that. We pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen.